that one of his favorite senators, none other than illustrious Senator Ted Kennedy, see some of you are too young to even know who that is. <laughs> anyway, um, he was co-author and sponsor of that bill. Now, of course, my 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 father-in-law could not believe that because Democrats could do no wrong and Republicans could do no right as far as he was concerned. And so it had to be all George Bush's fault and Ted Kennedy could not have been part of that. So I went to my computer and I went to that which knows all, Dr. Google, and I very quickly found an article from a news network that he would respect, which would be CNN. It's one of well, some Fox News thing or something. I mean, it was a CNN article that showed that in fact Senator Kennedy was one of the co-writers and co-sponsors of this bill. No biggie. I printed this article out. I gave it to my father-in-law. And he did not believe me. I said, it, it's CNN. You like CNN. You believe CNN. Yet you're telling me, oh, I couldn't have been. They must have misunderstood. See, sometimes people are just plain wrong. But sometimes when they're wrong, I mean, when you're wrong about who wrote an education bill, it's not a big deal. But sometimes when you're wrong, great damage can result. Until maybe the point where, as we'll see today, somebody sees the light. We're going to go back for our second foray in the book of Acts. Now, you recall back at the beginning of 2021, Maybe you'll recall that. Hopefully you can recall that. It wasn't that long ago. But at the beginning of 2021, uh, we went through the first part of the book of Acts, covering the parts uh, that had to do with Peter and those sorts of things. Uh, we're going to go back now, um, and we're going to start the parts that have to do with Paul. And we're going to start out seeing a place where Paul was just plain wrong. But before we get there, I want to, since it's been a while, and some of you maybe are, are new to my views on Acts and that sort of thing, I want to kind of review kind of the place of Acts in the New Testament. So we're going to spend the next several weeks up until Advent in the book of Acts. There's some things you've got to keep in mind. Now Acts takes us right from the departure of Jesus to be at the right hand of the Father, that which we call the Ascension, to the time where the Apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, is in Rome. That's where Acts ends. And so time frame-wise, that's actually from like AD 33 to about AD 60. So it covers about 27 years of history. It's a follow-up to the Gospel of Luke, written by the same person. Luke's Gospel, at its end, in chapter 24, verses 50 through 52, ends with a very brief description of Jesus' ascension, which is where the book of Acts picks up. It picks up with the last words of Jesus on that day when he leaves his disciples, and then Luke focuses on how the disciples carry out Jesus' commands, and serve as his witnesses to spread his message. The thing I want to note about the book of Acts is that it is transitional. By that, I mean we are going from the end of what we might call the Old Testament economy, which is fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection, right? He fulfills the Old Testament covenants through his death and resurrection. and begins what we call the church age. And when Acts starts, the only church is the newly forming one in Jerusalem. 
and it's going through growing pains. But by its end, the Roman Empire is dotted with fledgling churches, and if history tells us correctly, the gospel has even gone beyond the confines of the Roman Empire to places in the East. Because Acts is tra transitional, as we go along, we have to be really careful to discern between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. I've heard so many people over the years, and I, and I think they're well-meaning. They're talking about, well, this problem with the church and that problem with the church. And they'll say things, well-meaning things, like, well, we just need to get back to being like the early church. We just need to, to just get back like the book of Acts. And whenever I hear that, I hear Delvin's voice in my head going, really? <laughs> okay. Let's think about what that would mean. For example, one of the first things you find in the book of Acts is they need to find a new disciple to replace the traitor Judas. How are they going to do it? Got to find a new disciple. Who's going to replace Judas? Hey, let's cast lots. Sort of the, right, sort of the, actually the ancient equivalent of drawing straws or rolling the dice, right? Yeah. So if we're just going to look back at the early church to look at Acts, let's now start choosing our church leadership by drawing straws and rolling dice. I got some dice at home. Right? Big annual meeting would sure be a lot more interesting. <laughs> Put a little, little roulette table out there. Put people's names in different slots, right? I mean, I've never heard of any church drawing straws to pick their leadership or choose their pastor. And how would that work? If you, if you get chosen to be the pastor, does that mean you drew the short straw or the long straw? <laughs> <laughs> That's because, obviously, on the face of that, we realize that while Acts describes Peter, James, and John, and the rest doing that, it's not the prescribed way to choose church leadership. In fact, a couple chapters later when they need to choose leaders for something else, they do something completely different that has nothing to do with lots or dice or straws or whatever. I'm going to argue that very few things in the book of Acts are prescriptive, as in, we must do it this way. I mean, we, we should not pretend that we haven't learned a few things in the last 2,000 years. That God has just not worked in a lot of ways over that time. Let's also consider that when you're going through the book of Acts, one of the things you must keep in mind is that these churches did not have the New Testament yet. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They didn't have a fully complete Bible. The New Testament was still being written. So we're going to be very careful as we go through not to overemphasize the particulars of the early church in Acts. So we're, we're going to pick up the narrative this morning in Acts chapter 9. Now back in 2021, in our first uh, trip through Acts, I skipped chapter 9 because our plan then was to focus on Peter, who was the main apostle in about the first third of the book. Now we're going to go spend some time following Paul, and of course his sometimes companions Barnabas and Silas and Timothy, as they plant churches around the Roman world. But his story begins on a road leading from Jerusalem north to the city of Damascus. First thing we're going to learn is that people who are wrong but think they are right can be very dangerous. 
Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now Saul's story actually is introduced back at the end of chapter 7, where he stands by and approves the stoning of the church's first martyr, Stephen. It says at the end there that Saul stood by, people laid their cloaks there, and they went to stone Stephen. Now you might recall that stoning leads to a great persecution in Jerusalem, which is led by Saul, who according to chapter 8, verse 3, was literally going house to house and imprisoning anyone he found who was a follower of Jesus. So people fled Jerusalem, the church is pushed out, and Saul is going around causing all sorts of trouble. Well, apparently, he wasn't content to just work his persecution in Jerusalem. He gets permission to travel north to Damascus to go after the believers there. Now, the persecution had pushed a lot of people out of Jerusalem in fear, and some obviously had traveled north, and they were now in Syria, in Damascus. So Paul gets permission from the religious leaders to head north and arrest any followers of Jesus he might find. Now, it's really important for us to, to think about here when we think of Paul doing this. If you're like me, you probably read this and think, how can he do that? That's just horrible. How could you do that? But see, I promise you, Paul and the religious leaders who sent him would have firmly believed they were doing God's work. They were sure they were right. They were completely sure they were justified in persecuting this fledgling group of Jesus followers, both for religious reasons and political reasons, as they certainly did not want anyone causing more issues with the Romans. No one among the Sanhedrin or among the Pharisees or the Sadducees would have seen what Paul was doing as anything other than doing exactly what God would have wanted them to do. They were sure they were right. Saul probably would have quoted Deuteronomy 20, 20, 21, 23. Talks about how anyone is executed on a tree is cursed. He, like all the Pharisees, believed that before the true Messiah could come, that all of Israel would have to be fully obeying the Mosaic law. And they would have said this Jesus, he came and flouted the law, at least their interpretation of the law. And then he was executed on a cross. He could be no more the Messiah than Barabbas the rapper could have been the Messiah would have been their opinion. They were so sure. And they acted accordingly. This is the danger when someone is, just, is so convinced they are right and they are willing to do violence in the name of God against anybody who has a different opinion or different ideas. We have so many examples of this. It's hard to believe that we just don't ever seem to learn our lesson. Constantine was conquering in the name of Jesus. Crusades, part religious fervor, part political power struggle, part response to the Muslims coming into Europe. All three of those things work together. John Calvin, who used the power of the courts of the city of Geneva to imprison and even execute his theological opponents. Bet you didn't know that about Calvin. Had members of his own family put in prison because they didn't believe like he did. If being right is leading someone to violence, 
that is probably a good time to evaluate that particular stance. Jesus' way is not using violence to force his way on others. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 14, 17. Not about persecuting other people. But they were sure they were right. And Saul was sure he was right, and he was dangerous. But it's about to come to a shocking end as he's about to find out just how wrong he really is when he meets the risen Savior. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, <clears throat> he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he must have been getting pretty close to Damascus. Because Luke says it's as he approached. And so that seems to me at least that he's, he's much closer to Damascus than to Jerusalem. It doesn't seem like he's got long to get to the city. It says he went and led into the city. Now why does Jesus wait so long before this revelation? Why not? Why not hit him while he's still in Jerusalem, causing all sorts of trouble in Jerusalem? I don't know. Maybe there was no turning back at this point, so that was part of it. He couldn't run back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. The people that God wants to have instruct Paul, they're in Damascus after all, so maybe that's why. I don't know, the text doesn't really tell us. But there he is, and he's going on his way, and he's, I mean, I just picture him thinking, he's just, I can't wait to get to Damascus. Get them deep boys. Oh, sorry, that's a different show. And all of a sudden, he's bathed in heavenly glory. And Jesus speaks to him. Now, Paul knows enough here to understand he's having a theophany, right? A, a, a manifestation of the presence of God. And he addresses the voice with the word kurios, Lord, Master. But he, he's obviously pretty incredulous. He doesn't fully realize who's speaking to him. And, of course, Jesus very quickly clears that up for him. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out about this. A uh, couple things I want to take from this encounter. First of all, if God audibly speaks to you, now I realize it's probably not very likely, but don't ever say never. Okay? It is probably best to just answer and await instruction. It's probably the best plan. You remember in the Old Testament, the young Samuel is at the tabernacle, right? And God is calling to him, and he doesn't know what to do, so he keeps running to Eli. Eli is just like, the next time God calls to you, just say, speak. Your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Well, if you think God's calling you, probably best to humble this. I, I had a friend I ran into outside of Cup of Joe the other day. And she, she, she mentioned to me, I have no idea how this subject came up. But she, so I'd have a sermon illustration, I'm sure. <laughs> she mentioned to me that almost every night, Around four in the morning, she had she was awoken, hearing her name called, and she kept thinking it was her husband, but he was sound asleep next to her. And so I, she asked me what I thought. I didn't really know what else to say other than I said, "Well, the next time you think you hear your voice called, say 
here I am, Lord. Speak, your servant is listening, and see what happens. <laughs> I haven't heard back from him. <laughs> but I'm just saying. You never know. But the, but the, more, the more important thing I want to know here is the incredible grace of Jesus towards Saul. Saul is literally on a murderous rampage against people who are following the risen Savior. He's planning on blowing into Damascus like a whirlwind of righteous indignation. And instead, he has to be led into the city by the hand because he has been humbled and blinded by the glory of the Lord. But at the same time, he is redeemed by the grace of the Lord, who instead of destroying Saul or instead of punishing him, has chosen to reveal himself to him and bring this young, zealous man into his kingdom. Paul actually is the one who deserved what he was going to try to dish out. But instead, he receives grace and mercy from the Lord. Paul suddenly is able to understand just how wrong he had been. But in Jesus' grace and mercy, he is given a new opportunity to be able to serve the Lord and become a new person. I mean, isn't that what we should hope for every person? That they too can experience the grace and mercy of our Lord. Not that we can persecute them or wipe them out. People who oppose us are our enemies, so to speak. But that they can experience the grace and mercy of the Lord. If Jesus can love and redeem the very guy who is heading to Damascus to wipe out his followers, should we not also be willing to hold out to people the hope of an eternally changed life in Jesus? I mean, it's easy. It's easy to want to be like Saul. How can those people believe that? Because they understand that, that that's horrible. Whatever. You know, pick your, pick your thing. I mean, you find something. It's easy to villainize people who, who disagree with us, who disagree with the Lord. People who maybe, maybe outright hate the Lord. It's easy to, to make them the villain. But through God's grace, we need to learn to love and seek to let them know, too, that the Lord would extend his grace and mercy to them, just as he has to us. Maybe they can see the light then, too, so to speak. But this is all going to be just a walk in the park for the newly converted Saul. Jesus predicts that his service to the kingdom was not going to be a cakewalk. Because we're going to find out that following Jesus is not all fun and games. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Good response. Good Old Testament response. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, What you talking about, Lord? <laughs> Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who come, all who call on your name. You know what occurs to me? 
couldn't have been Ananias' first vision of the Lord, right? Because, I mean, he just has this casual go, well, okay, Lord, but I heard about this guy. He's not a nice person. You sure about this? I mean, I'm not questioning you. I'm just saying, you sure? It's me? I mean, you know, we'll see this over there. He, he, he could probably be him. He's bigger than I am. He's been hitting the weights. Amazing, he says this conversation. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's your key verse right there. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Okay, so here's another vision of the Lord, right? That's what we get two in one chapter. And Ananias is quick, quick to answer like the young Samuel, Here I am, Lord. My guess is when he did that, he probably was not thinking this is exactly what the Lord wanted to talk to him. This question is a good one, right? Uh, God, this guy's guy coming to take us out. Are you so sure about this? <clears throat> but God's answer here, I think, is really telling. He tells Ananias that Paul is the person he has chosen to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Something that had been hinted at in the Old Testament, but not yet fully grasped by the fledgling church. Remember, everywhere they went, they just went to the synagogues. Talked to other Jews. But more importantly, this is going to be an easy task because it's going to involve a great amount of suffering for the former Pharisee. See, this is the counter to Paul's earlier lifestyle. He is going from the one who is the cause of suffering, the persecutor, he's going to become the one that is persecuted, the one who has to suffer. And I think this is something very important for us to take note of. A lot of preachers want to sell you a bill of goods the Christian life is going to be all prosperity and fun and games and your best life now. To quote a certain book by a certain popular preacher from Texas. Which led her good Yeah. I didn't say it. I'm saying it. But here, God specifically explains that the guy who is called and chosen to be the one who will be the person most responsible for bringing the gospel to the majority of the world will have to suffer and suffer a great deal. The guy who's going to write about a third of the New Testament is called to suffer. And not just a little bit, he says, how much he will suffer. The idea being there, the answer is there, it's a lot. If you haven't read the rest of the book, it's a lot. It's a recurring theme in the New Testament. Everybody called by Jesus is called to the possibility of suffering for him, if we are living for him. In fact, you know, kind of the second half of Acts can almost be subtitled, How much will Paul suffer this trip? Because everywhere he goes, there's suffering. He gets arrested. There are trials. There are shipwrecks. There are beatings. There's a stoning. There's riots. There's getting kicked out of every decent city in Asia Minor. Everywhere he goes. He's not going to have a happy time. From this point forward, it's pretty much the rest of your life.
going to be rough. Sorry, Paul. See, we're not people who like suffering. We don't like to think about suffering. I mean, they sell ibuprofen in 500 capsule bottles because we don't even want to deal with a minor ache. I w yesterday, I was walking out to my garage and I tripped on the step into the garage and I wiped out the garage. Okay? And I'm laying on the floor and okay, I didn't break my arm, didn't break this arm, didn't break my leg, didn't break this leg, okay, I didn't break any ribs. I mean, I went down hard. Poor Taylor was standing there freaking out. And she curvy fall and she comes around and she's like, Dad, I'm like, it's okay, nothing's broken. Well, what's the first thing I did? 800 milligrams. <laughs> right? I don't want to suffer. suffering as a real possibility when we are following Jesus. Not that we're going to be looking for it. God forbid we cause our own suffering, because you know if you suffer because you cause your own suffering, that doesn't count, right? We know that. We're going to talk about it next time. I mean, if it's through our own sin or just being stupid, it doesn't count. Peter, who himself was no stranger to suffering, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be good God's will, than for doing evil. And we like that verse about explaining the reason for our hope, right? How many, how many people, if you've been in church for a long time, have heard somebody take that verse about you know, the hope that's within you and preach a big, long evangelistic sermon? Man, you should be ready everywhere you go to explain the hope that is in you. Man, if you're sitting on the airplane and you're Catholic with that poor person next to you for three hours, man, you get out your Bible and you just, you just nail them nonstop verses pulled completely out of context. Let them have it. Right? You've all heard that sermon. Right? This is why no one wants to sit next to you on a plane. But the context of that verse isn't not really a sharing the gospel everywhere you go verse. It's a what do you do when you're suffering verse? When you're suffering, be prepared to explain why you still have hope. Peter's saying when we suffer, we should suffer for following Jesus and doing right, not for doing wrong. And that's the context for us explaining ourselves. When we do suffer, we should be ready to explain why we're willing to suffer to those who are happy to see us suffer. One last truth, modeling the story of Paul's travel on the road to redemption. And that is real redemption leads to real change. Verse 20. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is this not the one who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
Now, you need a little historical context here to really get what's going on. When it says Paul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, you might read that and you might say, oh, well, there's probably a synagogue there, you know, 100 Jews or whatever, hanging out and that sort of thing. History actually tells us that Damascus was one of the largest enclaves of Jews outside of Israel. The city had somewhere between 30 and 40 synagogues. There were thousands of Jews in Damascus. And Paul is now suddenly telling them all that Jesus is the Messiah. He's seen him risen from the dead. He is the one promised to Israel. He's a completely changed man. He's gone from breathing murderous threats against the followers of Jesus to proclaiming the risen Savior to his people. And that's because real redemption leads to real change. Now, my personal opinion is that our last hundred years or so, our focus on decisions for Jesus and praying the sinner's prayer and that sort of thing has detracted from these two aspects of the gospel, the suffering part, which we already talked about, and the life change part. Real faith in Jesus is going to result in real life change. Now, it might not be so immediate and drastic as Paul's change. But he had a pretty drastic encounter with Jesus. But truly following Jesus is going to mean that things over time will change. Maybe different things for you than for me. But both of us should be able to look over time and see that many things have come more into conformity with being like Jesus. You should be able to look over between the time you came to know who Jesus really is and now and go, wow, some things have changed. I'm more like Jesus in these ways. Now, doesn't mean we're all perfectly like Jesus. I mean, that'd be great. We wouldn't need to be here anymore if we're all perfectly like Jesus. We could all go home and have bacon wrapped shrimp. <laughs> See, some of you don't like bacon wrapped shrimp, and that's disappointing. <laughs> but you'll change to become more informed now. You don't have to change that. But you understand what I mean? There's, there's got to be some change. And in fact, other people should be able to see that change. The Jews of Damascus, they see Paul's change, right? And they're kind of astonished by it. They're kind of like, wait a minute. Oh, wasn't this the guy last week who was throwing people in jail? And now he's proclaiming Jesus. That alone had to lend some pretty amazing weight to his words. There should be some change. You know, when my argumentative father-in-law that we talked about at the beginning came to know Jesus near the end of his sojourn on this earth, there was real and immediate change. He was literally a different wall. I mean literally like a different person. It was amazing change. And I can tell you his path was not easy as it took a lot of suffering for him to humble himself and submit himself to the Savior. But when he did, it was the real deal because he was a changed man. Following Jesus should, I mean, just, just as it did for Paul, just as it did for Walt, it should change us. Might also mean we might also suffer. But we should be zealous not for going after our opponents as the old Paul did, but instead zealous for Jesus and for helping other people to experience that same grace and mercy that Paul received, that we've received, that he wants to offer them.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you that just like Paul on that road to Damascus, you are still in the business of calling people to the love and grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe not in such dramatic ways, although we know that even in certain places in the world there are places uh, where Jesus is appearing to people in visions and calling them in dreams. But Father, you continue to call people so that they can experience the grace and mercy, that they can be changed and changed for the better. And Father, in the midst of that, we know that the forces of darkness in the world around us might oppose that. And so it's possible we may suffer as we change and as we follow the Lord. So help us to suffer for our love for him and to do so happily, knowing the grace and mercy that you've given us. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I will invite the band to come back up.